I love using the loom as a collaborator and not a tool and being able to create cloth that has that autonomy to it has just been really a way for me to honor the act of weaving itself. And why I was really drawn to weaving in the first place. It's not just about you. It's about you and this other thing. I'm Zach Foster, and you're listening to Seamside, the show where we explore the inner work of textiles. You know, as a southern expat living in a northern state, it's often nice to connect with somebody from home like Claire Hugh. There's something about how we see our roots now that we've left home that perhaps we didn't when we were growing up immersed in the culture. And how we make sense of all that, at least for Claire and me, requires the help of textiles. You may have noticed that I don't have any commercials on this podcast, and that's all thanks to the good folks over at the Quilty Nook. Well, I guess that was kind of a low commercial, wasn't it? But other than that, listen, Quilty Nook are some of the friendliest, most inquisitive, and feral group of quilters I know. Their membership support helps make projects like this podcast possible, and for that, I am truly, truly thankful. If you're looking for community and inspiration, I'd encourage you to check out The Nook and come be our guest for a few days. You can find out more about The Nook in the link in the show notes below. I hope to see you there. Now let's take a look at one of your reviews, like this one from Lily Lori, who said, Let's be real. Zach's authenticity reveals the truth of his guest. This revelation is the ultimate creative act. I love that, Lori. Thank you so much. Short and sweet. And right to the point. I sure would love to hear from you too. If you have a moment, could you go to Apple Podcasts and write me a review? And who knows, maybe I'll be reading your review this time next week. In this episode, I sit down with Claire Hugh, a weaver that lives right here in Brooklyn, in the same neighborhood I used to teach in when I first moved to New York. In this conversation, Claire and I explore the role movement and immigration can play in an artist's work how we can build bridges to the past, no matter where we find ourselves today, and how we can take up space in this world and exercise our power. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Claire Hugh. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, this is something I've been looking forward to ever since I talked to a mutual friend of ours, Nick Dornellis, who I believe is episode eight, if I remember correctly. Yes, amazing artist and screen printer. Love Nick so much. <laughs> so Claire, for those of us who are listening to the sound of your voice right now, can you tell us where you're at? Paint the picture for us a little bit. Yeah, of course. At the moment, I am coming to you from my living room slash office slash sometimes home studio in Brooklyn, New York. It is a very gloomy day today. So I think it's been like threatening to rain the entire day. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, a very cozy apartment for sure. What neighborhood are you in for folks who know Brooklyn? I am right between Bedside and Clinton Hill. So right where Atlantic is in Brooklyn. Um, oh, I know it well. Yes. Great, great location. I'm super lucky. My studio is actually only three blocks away from where I'm at. So it's been really nice to walk to the studios now that spring is here and we are finally getting some like nice sunshine and weather. 
I'm going to ask you a real estate question because, you know, New Yorkers, we love to talk real estate prices. Yes, How much course. do you pay for your studio, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, Our studio I share with two other people. It's around a little bit bigger than 300 square feet. I do We do pay $930 total, which honestly, I feel like finding an art studio in Brooklyn, someone's always looking, someone is always like stressing out about it it's so stressful but i think we really lucked out with this one just because of location amenities and i honestly would not want to leave anytime soon so now are you ever there with the other two artists at the same time it's actually funny we have very different schedules so it's actually a very rare occurrence if i run into one or the other but honestly it's kind of creates this nice symbiosis of uh I see the energy and the work that they leave behind when they leave the studio. And it's kind of a great way to kind of pick up from that and then kind of put it into my own work when I'm in the studio. So there's this nice like call and response that even though I know they're there, I never see them. But I think like the energy and the vibe kind of like keeps it keeps it going for me, at least. So that's just for me, that kind of connection, those little coincidental relationships that are made through our objects and through our art are so inspiring. I just got back from a week in Chicago with a good friend of mine, Amanda Natick. And even though Amanda and I were hanging out in person, I was responding to so much more as well, right? So definitely conversation with Amanda was inspiring and seeing how she was working was inspiring, but also her home and her surroundings and her materials and just everything. Right. That sounds so nice. I um, lived in Chicago for five years, so it's also just a great place to make work, think about thinking about making work. Also, it's such like a nice art community. I really miss it sometimes. But now here we are in Brooklyn. And you <laughs> and I, we talked on the phone maybe three weeks ago, just kind of getting to know each other a little bit, figuring out where what we might best focus on in the course of this conversation to give the folks at home some real juicy, meaty stuff to listen to. And I asked you a question I had never asked anybody else. And I think maybe I'd like to start there because maybe you've changed your mind or elaborated your answer. That question was, I was listening to you talk about your practice and you've got a lot going on. And the question was, if your creative practice were a table, how many legs would it have? And I think I answered that question with saying like 20 legs, probably more than that I think my practice is just where it is right now because of everyone that I've met throughout my life all of the connections and space to make that I've been able to have and have been really lucky to be able to have and I really just wouldn't be in the space that I am without the community that I have around me that I'm really thankful for so my art practice is very dependent on like I said like energy I I think a good example was my studio with the two friends that I have being able to kind of work off of them and kind of be part of like a larger textile community I would love I want a furniture maker out there somewhere to make a table with 20 legs like I want to see what that table looks like (laughs) me too (laughs) now when the first of your work that I ever saw that made me say whoa you got to talk to this person were these suspended tarps but i know that's part of your practice that we want to dig into and the other part of these patches right but let's start with the tarps tell us a little bit about that because it's maybe not exactly what comes to people's mind when they first hear tarp 
a lot of my work ever since I really start like seriously started thinking about weaving and making work was I've always been kind of interested in construction sites that I would pass by in the metro Atlanta area. I am originally from Georgia, uh, grew up there, was raised there, and was really influenced by the Chinese-American community and kind of how the community, especially other immigrant communities, moved around Atlanta and the ways that they did that. And I think being from the suburbs, you would see a lot of construction sites either paused or long abandoned. And with construction sites, there are always tarps that kind of become the divider between you and the the place that is being transitioned or changed. So I really grasped onto these tarps as like the textile or like the skin of transition and assimilation, especially within a new immigrant population. So I started really weaving these on the loom and they really did start as kind of like a one-to-one copy of what these tarps look like. But ever since then, like you said, they kind of snowballed into these like large installations that include these hand-sewn harness structures that help give it structure and weight and gravity. And I think with that, my own hope is that these things that are often thrown to the side or these things that we often ignore and become part of just like the peripheral landscape, it's really brought into focus and become like monuments to their own transition and change and especially for me like monuments to this community that I grew up in and I think one thing is the viewer of those tarps is so fascinating is that when I think of a tarp I think of a textile made out of plastic woven plastic that's not the material you're working with so these tarps have these tarps are modern objects that have this very deeply rooted historical sensibility about them So it's an interesting tying together two time periods that way. For sure. And I think the, I really love that they use cotton. It's something, it's like a material that everyone has a connection with through clothes, through bed linens. So the tarps themselves, especially when they do become installations, become something that a person can go up to and immediately relate back to their own body and think about, you know, their other, um, I know so many people have like heirloom quilts that they pass on generation to generation. For me, like my own family has like this blanket. So thinking about how this tarp can also just stand for textiles that stretch beyond where we are right now and talk about more about lineage and movement is kind of why I love really using more of these softer materials when I'm I'm weaving and kind of veer past using more like synthetics or plastics in my own work. When you're working on a tarp, do you ever just like wrap up in it? I do. Yes. It's so hard not to. I Because they're so large, when you take them off the loom, there's just this like very nice, satisfying weight to them. Sometimes I will just like, I have to lay them on the ground in order to kind of measure out like the the harness and exactly like what size and how long. Sometimes I'll just lay on top of it and there's just something very nice about it that I think is like a very much like a personal moment with me and my work that I don't really like share a lot about but I always think that like weaving for me has always been a way to connect back to family and lineage and heritage and kind of having that like skin to skin contact is just a way to like continue that connection. Yeah, because these things that we make, they they exist in multiple spaces, don't they? You know, like I think of my quilts that, yeah, maybe maybe they hang on a wall 
at some point. And maybe that's even like their final destination, you know, so to speak. But in between my hand sewing it and it getting hung up on a wall, it might have a dozen different locations and a dozen different applications and interactions with it. Definitely. And it's kind of nice to think of all the hands that have to, it has to pass through in order for it to get to its final destination. All that like additional history that it can hold within it through that time. Where do you think you could hang your tarps so that they can most fully exercise their power? Like where your tarps would do the most good or have the largest effect? Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, I was recently home in Atlanta during the holidays. There is this shopping center that I remember going to with my dad that had our favorite duck, Chinese roast duck restaurant that has been there since I was a very small baby. Um, and I just remember going here for the weekend. Uh, ever since then, it's kind of cycled through different grocery stores. But right now, it has just been completely... Construction has paused, uh, no renovations, and is completely empty. And I would love to be able to show a series of these tarp installations all hooked together in one of these places that used to be that aren't anymore and kind of call back to that time of, I think there's this like I, this childhood nostalgia that also feeds into it of wanting to be in this place in order to create like an homage or memory to all of the things that passed through it before. So I think that would probably be be my my dream place to show these um, installations, which is just, you know, back home, which I think is pretty sweet too. <laughs> that is a magical image to think about, this kind of like empty former grocery store that has so much square footage and these beautiful high ceilings to hang your 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 tarps from. Now, how much of, how important is it for you that your tarps suspend from the ceiling? Do you ever display them in other ways? Well, it's actually really interesting. Um, they first were all wall-based. Uh, there was something about the wall that I wasn't fully satisfied with. I really wanted these works to have, demand more space for themselves, which I thought was very important. Not only in talking about the community that I talk about, uh, very fleeting. I would say that, you know, the major Chinese American population that worked through the small part of Georgia was really there from maybe like the 80s to the mid 2000s. Um, and like a lot of landscapes around us, so many other populations and cultures kind of move in and out and ebb and flow throughout that. Uh, so for me, it was like very important to kind of bring light to this small community that I have a lot of care for. And I think that kind of paralleled with wanting to take these works off the wall, um, demanding more space, demanding more attention. Um, and with that, becoming more autonomy for themselves that maybe they wouldn't have had when they were hung on the wall. Makes sense to me. <laughs> now, this this community that you talk about is so fleeting, the Chinese-Americans community in Atlanta specifically. And that's a large part of your parents' story, right? Can you give us a little bit of background there so we know what you're thinking about when you say, when you refer to home? Yeah, of course. I think the idea of home is very fraught, but my, my parents immigrated 
uh, to the United States in, I want to say, the early 90s. And I think a lot, like a lot of young people at that time, they were able to immigrate because of student visas. So my dad was uh, pretty much decided that the first school that was able to give him a student visa he would go to. Uh, and that ended up being uh, Ole Miss in Mississippi, which is just really crazy to think um, so he immigrated first and then my mom followed and after he graduated they moved to the metro Atlanta area um, mostly because of cost of living but at the time there was also a very large Chinese community um, and you know as like a lot of new immigrants you want to kind of be with a community that you're most comfortable with so they moved to Atlanta at that time and bought a house and had me and I was able to really uh, be a part of their story and kind of experience a little bit of what that community looked like during that time, which I feel very lucky to have been able to experience. I think the Chinese American community in the South is so different than what you see out in California on the West Coast or even in New York. How so? How are they different? Well, Atlanta, like a lot of southern cities like Houston, it's just like a sprawling city. There isn't a lot of um, blocks of houses, so that just creates a community that is also sprawling. I reference a lot this map that's taken from this book called The Chinese Yellow Pages that really outlines all of the shopping centers that had, you know, all of the Chinese bookstores, grocery stores, restaurants in the metro Atlanta area. And if you look at that map, it takes up most of the area around like Buford Highway, around like the perimeter. But at that time, a lot of Chinese people also lived more north of Atlanta. So there's also a lot of just moving between like miles and miles of roads in order to get from like one space to another, which I think is very different than kind of like the smaller Chinatowns that you have, more dense cities like New York, for example. I know at one point you said that strip malls played a large part of that too right? It's kind of the hubs, right? Right. And I think that it's really interesting because I think that like strip mall culture, sh shopping center culture is so like ubiquitous to a lot of Southern cities. I think it's very surreal. You know, there's a large highway, Buford Highway that I talk about a lot in my work. When you drive down the road, all you see are like huge sprawling shopping centers on both sides with massive parking lots in front of them and large signs that kind of advertise all of the businesses inside. I just remember always just being like so fascinated with the signs themselves and the different fonts, the different languages. And it was also just like a really just great place to be able to grow up. And what do you see now when you drive down Beaufort Highway, is it? Yeah, Buford Highway is still the same thing. Like I said, like the barbecue duck or the roast duck place that my dad and I used to go to, it's still there. You still see the sign. But now like Buford Highway is just very known for a lot of newer immigrant immigrant populations to move in. So you see a lot of Southeast Asian restaurants and grocery stores now, a lot of like Hispanic restaurants. And I think what's so interesting is like just like the amount of cultural diversity that you have in Metro Atlanta. That really just makes it like such a great place to grow up. I think people have this very monolithic idea of what the South is, but when you really kind of like dig deeper into like smaller pockets of community, it kind of flips that narrative around, which is really nice. Let's talk about the tarps themselves now as objects, because you are 
weaving these tarps, I know that a lot of folks listening are weavers themselves, or at least have a working knowledge of how this, how, how weaving happens, right? And in your particular practice, you're working with overshot weaving. Can you tell us a little bit about what overshot is and why you're incorporating that in your practice the way that you are? Yeah, so overshot weaves or overshot weaving drafts are a type of weaving that was very popular in the southern United States, specifically like the Appalachian region of the United States. It is the ability to kind of create these very geometric eye-catching designs with the fewest amount of harnesses possible. So you're really able to create something so intricate and beautiful with just like the most basic loom that you could be able to use. What I really psychedelic, right? Like there's a lot of patterns that are really trippy. They're so psychedelic. And I think what why people are always so drawn drawn to like overshot weaves is because of how optical they are and how timeless they kind of become. And I think what's really great about the history of overshot weaves is that patterns were always kind of passed down from family members or community members. People were really able to kind of dissect the different elements of an overshot weave. For example, like you might have a star pattern that you really like in one draft. You're like, oh, I really want to use this in my own. So they would take that, modify it, create a whole new draft to then kind of be passed down again and again. So there's really like this very interesting kind of like telephone version of like what like this draft can become. But I was also just really drawn to it because of like the names of the drafts themselves. A lot of the time they kind of reference a lot of things in nature. You know, you have like blooming leaf or like rose pass. But a lot of drafts also kind of reference historical events, which I thought was really interesting. So the overshot draft that I use pretty often in my work is called Leave Surrender. And there's kind of this myth about it that it was drafted by this woman whose son had died during the Civil War. And I was just really like enraptured by it just because of the pattern itself, but also this history. I make work about my own community, but that community is in the South and it's you can't talk about the South without kind of talking about the broader context of what it is historically and what it means right now. So for me, being able to kind of find this like physical manifestation of it, modify it again in order to create something that's like completely my own and then use that in the work has just been like a really interesting way to play with draft making, but also play with this lineage of taking different elements, mixing them together and then creating something else. I have a overshot blanket on my bed and I love it because it was is too it must be about a century old at least it's indigo and natural I don't know the name of the pattern but it was woven in two separate links and hand stitched up the middle so there's this beautiful rough hand stitch that combines the two pieces and I get under that and I just think whose mom made this you know like who what how did this wind up in my life i feel just feel like so i don't know entrusted by fate to have such a beautiful object in my in, in on my bed a question for you though is so these a lot of times quilt blocks also have these kind of wild names you know and sometimes the maker will choose to work with a certain block because of the name and work intentionally with that that name or sometimes it's just the pretty block so when you're thinking lee's surrender is there something granular, something more specific about that draft 
and the history that the name implies, or is it the draft itself and the the visual elements of it that you were drawn towards? I think it's more about what the draft kind of represents. I think a lot in my work about this idea of how Southern nostalgia and large myths about the South have kind of been propagated up until now. In Atlanta, there is a very large tourist site that has like the largest granite mountain in Atlanta. It's called Stone Mountain, and it has um, Confederate generals carved on the side, but it's also one of the largest tourist sites in Georgia. So recently, I've just been thinking a lot about how commodification of you know, these like very racist histories that really haven't been dealt with are almost normalized or become mainstream because of how commodification works in like our capitalist society. Uh, so thinking about how like how big these have become. And for me, taking something like Lee's Surrender, taking this big idea, this large myth about the South, and then reclaiming it for myself in that I'm changing what the draft originally looks like in order to have a different application is just a way for me to kind of turn that on its head. But also, I think it also parallels a lot with the actions that a new immigrant has when they come to a new landscape. You know, they see what the culture is in the place that they go to. They see what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And they can decide, oh, I want to to take on this or I want to keep this. I think a good example of this is that growing up, my mom you would have kanji it's like very popular in like asian households but we would never have kanji we would have grits in the morning but my mom would make the grits like she would make kanji so i think like these little things that you just like create for yourself in order to kind of create home these bridges these connections definitely is there anything similar in chinese weaving technique to overshot that's actually a good question. Not that I know of, actually. I It's so funny because I don't really reference too much of Chinese weaving history. I usually reference like Chinese like patching or quilting history. And that has just been a really good way to kind of play with like these two dynamics of, you know, my own history. This like Southern one, but also this one that comes from my own family. Yeah, so let's go to patches. So the patches themselves really started out of like the utilitarian need to patch the larger tarp works. Seams rip because of gravity. I also, I would say I'm an okay sewer, but not the greatest. So the patches were kind of like a way for me to be able to create more stability in that cloth. But it kind of has just snowballed into this practice where I take woven offcuts from the loom, digital images that are printed on textiles as well as screen prints printed on duck cotton and create these small collages that I call prospective patches. And it's to the point where I've created so many, I think I, I call them prospective patches because they're for in case something else goes wrong with the tarps, which I think seems like a very pessimistic practice. But for me, it kind of just roots back to if you prepare enough, then the worst won't happen, which kind of seems pessimistic, but seems more of like this guarded optimism. I think I've always been a person that tries to pre- prepare for everything. So this is kind of how it has manifested in my own art practice. But now it's so great because they've, they've become so big, honestly, <laughs> and they are wall works, but 
I've recently been thinking about ways that they can peel off the wall a lot, like how a poster peels off the wall or rips in order for something to be shown on the other side. So with that, just working with a lot of imagery of Metro Atlanta, of the maps that I work with, and yeah, just a way to kind of also tap into a different form of craft that is different than weaving, which I've been doing for for, for a while. And in your patch making practice, you had a moment early on that you were telling me about, and I stopped you because I didn't want to hear the end of it, about your great-grandmother and a connection you you made there. Yeah. When I first started creating these patches, I was talking to my mom about it, and she brought up that her grandmother, so my great-grandmother, would take used linens, shirts or clothing that has no more use anymore, cut them up and then glue them down in layers to create kind of this like very stiff material that could either be like the lining of the jacket, or as my mom said, like she would create their shoe soles from it. So I thought it was really interesting that I accidentally kind of stumbled upon this same practice that someone in my family had been doing before that I had never met, but my mom has a very strong connection to. And it kind of hit that, you know, it's, There's this, recently I've been thinking a lot about lineage and heritage. I came from a very small, tight-knit family unit with only, you know, a few immediate family members, but didn't really know a lot of extended family. And for me, this patch making, these perspective patches has kind of been a way to kind of touch those people that aren't there anymore that are really important, but I wouldn't yeah, I wouldn't be here without them and kind of honoring their own histories and their own modes of survival that has gotten my parents and me where we are right now. And those people, I mean, I think about this a lot with the ancestral work that I do in my own practice, that like those, what made them them is also in us, right? We are just recombinations on the genetic level, on the physical material level. We are just recombinations of our ancestors. And it's so wild to think about. And I, I think that's why I also really love weaving so much. I Weaving becomes an accumulation of threads, but it's also just an accumulation of like the actions that your hand is doing, but also the actions of, you know, everyone else before you, family or not, past weavers or great grandmothers. And I think that's what's so great about, I mean, going back to why the tarps need more space and gravity is... I think it's such a good archive and way of saying, you know, I was here, my family was here, this is important, and just a way to kind of honor all of the ancestors before us. A way to make the invisible visible. Exactly. Hold space and hold place. So much of your work, your tarps and your patches both, feel like they've already lived a lifetime, right? They, They look visibly distressed or there's skips in the weaving. Where does that come from? I think it comes back to those tarps that I see, I I saw growing up from places that were never fully built, whose construction sites were fully paused. They, because of just like the nature of tarps, especially just become threadbare, they slowly disintegrate because they aren't meant to stay forever. And being able to kind of 
copy or use that kind of language on the loom and play with also the loom itself and the capabilities of what it can weave and what it can't weave um, is kind of why they once off the loom, there's all of these skips happening, all of these mistakes, partially because of wanting to kind of point to that history. It's not shiny and new, but it's something that so many people have lived through before and continue living. But also, like, I love using the loom as a collaborator and not a tool and being able to kind of create class that has that autonomy to it has just been really a way for me to honor like the act of weaving itself and why I was really drawn to weaving in the first place. It's not just about you. It's about you and this other thing. I just wrote down loom as collaborator, not a tool. I think that's beautiful. And I feel like it's the same with when you use vintage quilts or older quilts, it becomes a collaboration with all of that history and less like, new fabric that you can kind of form into whatever shape that you want it to be. Let's poke around and see what happens. Yeah, I really love that poking around and see what happens. With weaving, you have to be so precise with how you plan and dress the loom. But recently, I kind of just love kind of working at the, just being very intuitive with it and seeing what happens. And that has just been like a great way to open more possibilities with what you can do especially with painting the loom adding like weaving multiple layers at the same time i feel like so many people go to the loom and think of it as such like a rigid thing but in reality it can be as flexible as you want it to be what i'm thinking specifically of i mean this goes back to to one of your tarps but like pleasant hill for example it is a square but it captures the softness of textiles with that grid overlay that you have so beautifully, so beautifully. And it's really amazing how much movement you can get from such a flat object. I think that's something I've also been trying to imbue in like these perspective patches as well. Taking a textile, letting it fall onto the canvas, seeing how it moves, and then sewing or pasting it down to create these really nice, like, voluptuous layers and lines that kind of bring something to the eye that might not have been there before if it was, like, an insulation. So, Claire, I got to show you something. I was walking around the neighborhood right before this talk because I like to kind of clear my mind and get centered. You know, recently I heard Rick Rubin, who's the author of uh, The Creative Act, which is, have you read that book yet? Y'all, everybody add the creative act to your list. I mean, I haven't read it yet, so maybe I shouldn't recommend it. But I have heard him on two different interviews, and it's it's rocking my world. Because one of the things that Rick Rubin does before an interview is he talks about how he envisions his higher self floating above his head. And he envisions the person he's about to talk to, the their higher self floating over their head. And he envisions the two higher selves, you know, bonding and teaming up to like make the best thing possible in that conversation. Right. So I'm out clearing my mind, going on a walk, envisioning the higher selves and all this thing. And I look down and I find I'll show you first and I'll describe it for everybody. I don't know if that's focusing. It's this little maybe like postage stamp size scrap of red plastic weaving, like the kind that like onions would come in, that kind of a bag. And when you look at Pleasant Hill, which is one of my favorite pieces of Claire's, the star of the show is this little red patch that you found somewhere and wove into your piece. And it just felt like kismet, the whole thing. 
that what a beautiful coincidence it's so funny because i also found that bit of red scrap walking around in my neighborhood and i picked it up gave it a good bath when i got home and i just kept it i i feel like with a lot of people who work in textiles you kind of start picking up things around you through your life you know that there is this importance to it but you don't know exactly how you want to apply it yet until the perfect moment. And for me, that perfect moment was uh, in that piece. And we'll, I'll put an image of that in the show notes so folks can see the star of that show, that red, little piece of red patch. Now, speaking of patches, and let's go back to your patch practice more specifically then. You know, you, you said something a few minutes ago about like, if you prepare for the worst, I'm paraphrasing, but if you prepare for the worst, at least you're ready for when it comes. You know what to do, right? And I don't know if we want to go here or not. Feel free to say, no, thank you. But in the last handful of years, we have seen a rise in violence, especially anti-Asian violence. And I'm wondering, and looking at your work, thinking about your experience and thinking about like the, the textures and the stories that you're telling through your work, to what extent does this rise in violence make its way into your work, if at all? Uh- I think it makes it into the work immediately. We had the Atlanta spa shootings just a few years ago, and that was really hard because it hit a lot of those shopping centers and communities that I work with. And it was really heartbreaking to kind of witness in real time and just a really hard reminder that the other side of my research thinking about, you know, whiteness in the South is still so present and, you know, how we experience everyday our everyday life. And even though the Metro Atlanta area is so diverse, has so many different cultures that coexist together, there can still be really awful violence that kind of pierces through all of that. And I think because of that, I just keep making the work that I make as kind of a stance that, you know, it doesn't, we're, this history will always be there. It, people have lived it, people have experienced it, and that these patches for me has just become another avenue in order to kind of talk about all of these histories. Yeah, as a way of demonstrating the, I can't think of another word other than unerasability, right? Like, we're not going anywhere. I think it was harder because it happened while I was here living in New York, and it just felt like, you know, there wasn't much that I could do except to raise awareness with donations to families and to the community itself. Um, and I think there is this difficulty when you're making work about a place that is so far away. This need to kind of, you know, I feel like I always think about staying in New York, going back to Atlanta, going back to Georgia. What does that look like? What does the work look like? Will it change? And how does my perspective of it change now being so far away? And how does that alter the work? So I really do work kind of in this like field of nostalgia and nostalgia of memories and blurriness of memories um, and that's kind of just been a way for me to kind of reckon with that but yeah we'll we'll see what happens in the future when I do move back so Claire I want to poke around there just a little bit because you said that you wonder a lot about how place influences your work being here versus there can we go ahead and put some put some walls on that house like how has it affected you as an artist making work about the south being 600 some miles away 
I think I've learned so much being far away. I think it's given me a good perspective, like having that distance. But in the same time, I found myself working more and more with ideas of my own nostalgia, uh, ideas of my own parents' nostalgia and memories when they think about when they first moved to the States. And then intermixed within that, the larger nostalgia of what it is being Southern and working with that history. I think it's formed this kind of very strange conglomeration of new parallel universe narrative or way to look at things that I also am dissecting at the same time. So it just becomes like this chunky stew of emotions <laughs> and imagery. And um, and I think that's why it's really nice to, like, I, I go back probably two or three times a year. And it's also just very nice to kind of ground myself again. My parents recently moved to Dublin, Georgia, which is in middle Georgia, kind of very in the middle of nowhere. So it's also just been really interesting to go back there and see how this new landscape that my mom is living in is, you know, changing her, but also how she in turn is also changing that landscape for, I like to think the better. So it's an, yeah, it's something that I'm still, and I think it'll always be kind of this constant push and pull thinking about what it is like to make work about a place that you don't live in anymore. Can you imagine making the work that you're making today if you hadn't moved to New York? I don't think so. I think, you know, when you brought up the the table legs, I was reminded of a very key moment of why I moved to New York, which was for um, a textile residency here in Brooklyn. That was around nine months or so. It was the middle of the pandemic and, you know, we weren't really doing much. No one really was. So the only people I really had contact with besides my partner, my dog, was our cohort I had there. And we grew really close and they're such a good group of curators and artists. And I really don't think I would even be talking about tarp installations without having made the work and really incubating the work while I was at that residency. So... Yeah, I think if I stayed in Atlanta, my work probably, I think, I definitely know I would still be weaving, but it probably would have taken on a whole different aesthetic and reason to make, etc. Yeah, you know, it's funny that I wasn't quilting before I moved to New York. And so I think that there, for me, there's something about like leaving home, that quilting became kind of like a surrogate home connection for me and allowed me to be Southern in the North. And then living in the North has given me a a critical distance through which to think about Southern culture as a thing that can be observed from a distance or from what we'll say the outside, whatever that is, right? Like I can, I grew up in the middle of it. I couldn't, I could tell you everything about Southern culture and nothing at the same time because it was the water, the air that I was living in. But now having moved away, I can look back at the culture at home and I love so much about it. And I will be back South one day very soon. But it's also given me an apple to compare my orange. And so now I know there are certain things we can do better. And I want to be part of that change by getting back down South. Oh, I, I feel completely the same way. There's something about being Southern and not living in the South that I it makes me feel a little like a ghost wondering where home really is but like you said like quilting for you and weaving for me really has been that like 
amazing connection with um, what it means to be a, a Southern person, whatever that looks like in different forms. And such a great reminder of where you came from and such a good like point or weight in order to kind of ground yourself and make sense of the world. <laughs> so, yeah. Claire, is there anything else you'd like to bring into the conversation before we start wrapping up? No, I think we covered a good amount of stuff. Well, I've got one last question for you that I'm curious about. What do your parents think about the work that you make? It's so embarrassing because I... And so it's a little bit personal, but uh, growing up in a very tight-knit family, we weren't very um, emotional when it came to what I did, like art making wise, or just showing like emotions in general. So I think my parents are very supportive of me as an artist, but they don't really get why I make the work that I make. And I think that's that's fine. I It's funny though, I talk so much about both my mom and my dad and my work and I use imagery from our own like family photos and my own personal archives of photos. And I think that even though they might not like exactly get why I make the work that I'm making I think that's fine because it's a way for me to kind of say like thank you to them for being such great parents <laughs> um and kind of supporting me like throughout the way so and I like to think that our family even if they can't put it into words necessarily or quote-unquote get it mm-hmm. still feel it right they get the depth of it which I think is at least that's what I like to think I like to think so too Claire, this has been a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for making time out of your day, keeping Annie the dog quiet, <laughs> and, and sharing a little bit of your practice with us. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you again for having me. It's been a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sew something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.